Welcome to the Financially Intentional Podcast Expert Edition. Every Tuesday, I'll be joined by an expert in a particular field that is here to help you get your money right. These people are going to impart some serious knowledge, y'all. I'll be right here learning right beside you guys. So be prepared to take notes and more importantly, be prepared to take intentional action. What's up? What's up? So happy to be back stateside. So happy to be back with Dr. J. Hey, Dr. J. You know, you get to do all this traveling and I'm like stuck in my house. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> You know what? It was quite an adventure, but South Africa was so beautiful. I'm so glad I got to experience it. And it was like the only comparison I have like on the Africa side was like West Africa and South Africa. And the differences are really, really crazy. But I was in West Africa like 20 years ago. So I'm sure that has a lot to do with the differences, but like still apartheid and just like all these other kind of things. But South Africa is a beautiful country. It reminds me of California in a way, how perfectly diverse it is, like how you can go like from the mountains to the beach. And so it, it was really nice. And I spent some time in both Johannesburg and Cape Town. And just really did a whole lot of nothing <laughs> besides sightseeing. So it was a good break for me. So you should be a little bit jealous, but not a lot. <laughs> no, I, I am. Like, I, I, my wife and I went away for a cruise over Christmas and New Year's. Yes. And we came back with COVID. So, you know, like, you, you get to travel and have good times. And I come back, like, what the heck? This is just the wrong combo. And you know what's so sad is that me being the immunocompromised one over here and then me working in the hospitals have never had COVID or at least I've never been sick. So I don't know if I've ever had it. So I think the irony is there, (laughs) but I'm sorry. I was jealous of your cruise until you told me about the COVID thing. Well, you know, I I don't know. (laughs) You and I just need to figure out better trips. You know, let's just trade, you know, I Obviously, you're picking better than I am. Well, I think I have just one more trip in the book, and that's going to Cincinnati, which is Cincinnati, for economy. I don't know if you've heard of it or been, but economy is an incredible conference. So for these personal finance nerds, kind of like the fire talks of finance. And so I love that conference. I was a speaker last year. So that'll be my my good grand finale trip before I'm bedridden, for lack of a better word. <laughs> yeah, I've got a couple of conferences planned too, but it's like conferences are not the same. Like, no, no. like I mean, that's work, you know. And I always come back from conferences and need like two days to rest after. Yeah, you know, like I, I'm not a people person. I'm like I'm an introvert by nature, and like yes. the conferences, is too many people. Just it is. It's I, I'm an extrovert, and it's too stimulating for me to like. I have to take good naps in the middle of the day or a conference because it is a lot of interactions. So. Yeah, I get the, the people are like, oh, let's go out. And I'm like, yeah, I've had enough. Like, I had dinner, like, saw you people. I spent the whole day. Like, I'm going to go just climb into my hotel room and not come out till tomorrow morning. <laughs> I 100% feel you. That's kind of where I'm at right now. That's I, I leaned heavily into that in my last trip. So, well, we do have a listener question this week. And we'll kind of break this down into parts. Of course, I don't have it pulled up because that would mean I was prepared, which... <laughs> Oh, that's laughable. But so I'm going to kind of read the question and then we can, you know, answer it and discuss the different points of it. But I think it's a very interesting question and something that would apply to a lot of people. 
So our listener is asking, what would you do if you were just beginning to match a 403B, 457 deferred comp targeted and invested in tar- age target based funds, basically, and you had $30,000 in student loans at a 5% interest rate, would you pay off your loans first or try to meet the match. They're already at 6%, but they want to go to 10%. They're also working for a PSLF qualified organization and all the paperwork has been turned in as of October 31st last year. So this is basically that question of paying off debt versus investing using PSLF, public service loan forgiveness. So what say you, Dr. J, how would you approach this? So you and I had a big debate about paying off your, your debt versus investing. And we may end up in a different place on this one. And this is kind of interesting. So give, give people just kind of a context thing. So it's February of 2023. It is a week before the student loans go to Supreme Court. And if anyone asks, like, what's going to happen with student loans? I have no clue. Like, seriously, anyone that seems to know has got a better crystal ball than I do. So the public service loan forgiveness. And I'm going to have to get political for a second here. And not intentional, but it crossed over to finance. The last presidential administration approved nobody on public service loan forgiveness. This administration's approving pretty much everybody. The October 31st deadline was for the extended program. So mm-hmm. I'm assuming that they had some extra time. Now, if you have extra mm-hmm. time, you're actually getting credit for the COVID time and also any other time you're making payments. So you're working towards that 10 years, 120 payments. You might be further along. Yeah. Now, let me ask you the question. Who's going to be the president in the next term? We do not know. Hopefully it's not Trump. Oh, I'm not even going that far. I'm just going kind of like... <laughs> Like, who's to know? Yes. So the problem with the public service loan forgiveness is you're taking a bet on who's going to be in charge at a certain time. Mm -hmm. So I met with somebody the other day who just brand new nurse, just starting a public service loan forgiveness. And I'm like, I have no clue if the program will be around in 10 years. Mm -hmm. Never mind who's going to approve or who's going to be in charge in 10 years. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I really don't like taking a bet on my forgiveness on politics. What do you think? Right. At the same time though, I would say it depends because I do know people who have been nurses or worked in public service for the last 20 years, like the people my age that kind of went through nursing school around the same time as I have. So I've been a nurse for 13 years and I'm seeing them get in $200,000, $130,000, like wiped off the books in the last couple of months. And so I'm just like, I don't know, like I wish <laughs> I was in their shoes. But the thing is, is that that's not something that they depended on. That's not something that a lot of people even knew was possible. And it kind of is just like something that, okay, everything kind of aligned in the right way to work for them. Then there's COVID and all this stuff that extended the program out to be able to qualify more people. And so it's, it is one of those things. It's kind of like gambling because it's unpredictable, right? 
So I get it, but I'm just like, man, these stories that I'm hearing of people getting so much, so much of their loans forgiven. I'm just like, oh my God, that's amazing. Yep. So let's go to this example. So we got $30,000 in loans. Mm-hmm. My first question is, well, do you qualify for Pell Grants when you got your loans? Because then potentially you could get $20,000 forgiven if the Supreme Court case goes in the right place. Right. Now, by the way, if you get $20,000 forgiven and you have $10,000 left, I'd be like, pay off that loan and just call it a day. That's like, it. Just, yeah. Just, it just, <laughs> it's th- like there's no debate patients. on that. Right. You know, I... That that makes it easy, unless you're telling me like I have like three payments left to get public service loan forgiveness, you know, something like that. So when it comes to public service loan forgiveness, the other option is this new repay program. Now, this is getting kind of weird because all the details aren't out there. So in theory, in August-ish or fall-ish, the Department of Education is going to come up with this new repay program which is going to cap payments at 5% of your discretionary income. And it, there's like some weirdness in there, like depending on how much you make and whether you went to community college, all that, but 5%. But what's more important is they're going to cover the interest. So your loans stop growing. Now that is a good argument for PSLF now. I pay 5%. By the way, if you're in a couple, you might want to consider uh, filing taxes singly, depending on if that's going to help you or not, because now you're going off of one income versus two. So 5%. They pay the interest. I can keep this loan around for 10 years. At the 10% and they didn't pay the interest, you know, like I could be stuck with. So if you ask me the question in August, I'd probably give you a different answer than today. Yeah, it's a whole lot of it depends here. <laughs> There's so much stuff in limbo. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think to make it easy, if you get the 20 grand, pay the loan off. If you get the 10, well, <laughs> it's a debate. And if you don't get no money, you know, we all get nothing. Probably run the PSLF, seeing how many payments you have left. The other part of that is, though, you're going to have to apply for the new repay program when those details come out. And the Department of Education has said, we're coming out with them at some point and no guidance like when, how, where, or anything along those lines. Can I just emphasize how much of a mess like this whole process has been like getting erroneous emails, like opening up a program being like, psych, we got to go to the Supreme court first. Like I feel bad for people with student loans. I mean, I love the, I love it for the people who are getting forgiven, but like, this is kind of like not a great place to be in. If you're considering like debt is already this kind of contentious thing and this thing that carries so much of a burden in your life. And now you're like going back and forth with the government. It's kind of a hard, a difficult place to be in when you have loans. So I don't envy those people. I feel the struggle. I understand that struggle because I've been there. But I wanted to ask, like, do you have a general rule of thumb where it comes to paying off debt versus investing as far as like the percentage of the debt to your income? Now, I think this person is a nurse. Um, And so if you're making like $200,000 and you have, I'm saying only because $30,000 is a lot of money, but I'm saying only in the world of student loans, because when you compare them to like my almost $200,000 in student loan debt, $30,000 seems nominal, especially because of how much you can earn as a nurse. Would you just say like in, in certain situations, just pay it off, like stop playing around, like just get rid of it, like at a 
certain income threshold to your debt to your income ratio? Yeah, I'm one of those no debt people. So I just say pay it off. I don't care what your debt or your income is or whatever. You know, 30 grand, by the way, you're right. It's a lot of money. Some people, it's not a lot of debt. Like I have people yeah. come to me, at, I got a lot of debt at 30 grand. I'm like, you didn't break six figures. Okay. You know, like in the U.S., six figures is where I start going. That's a lot of debt, <laughs> right. which by the way, right. that's a sad discussion. That's a separate, you know, economic discussion. But what happens is, look at it this way. That loan is 5% interest. So if you pay it off, you get a 5% guaranteed, risk-free, tax-free return. So let's say you are in California, like Nassima is, and your tax rate, your federal tax rate is 30-something percent, because that's, I'm willing to bet, most people in tax, you know, once you figure your state and all that, you'd have to make essentially 30% more than 5%. So you'd have to make it 6.5% to even make sense to invest. Mm-hmm. Now, by the way, the match is free money, so that's a separate, separate discussion. But you'd have to make a giant amount. The stock market, on average, returns somewhere seven to ten percent, and there's alternate ways of measuring that. But that we have to pay taxes on. Yeah. So five percent guaranteed return. If I could put all of my money into something that's going to be five percent for the rest of my life, never lower, never higher, and no taxes on it, I would do that. Well, then paying off the debt is the right answer. Now. The PSLF is that one little twist of like, well, if it can go just away for free, well, then that's <laughs> free money. And I think that's the hard part is people go, well, I've always had these student loans. I'll always have them around. No, you don't have to always keep them. You can pay them off. Like it does work. Right. For for this situation, for this person, if they qualify for PSLF, their loans are currently in deferment right now. So they don't have to make payments. They are getting a match at their company, which I think they're asking to increase their match, increase how much they contribute over the match. And, you know, there's all these things going on with repay, with the student loan, with the courts and all of that stuff. Like over the next couple of months, what would you advise them do, to do? So if they're going to end up paying it off themselves, you know, because let's say they're hoping to get 10 or 20, I'd have them take the extra cash and put in a high year of savings. And then once we finally have payments again, just write a big old check and yeah. you know, take a chunk out of it. Now, yeah. let's go to the other side. Say, like, they decide, yep, they're going to go public service loan forgiveness. They only have another year of payments. Cool. Let's talk about upping their 403B 457. Now, little technicality for people. If you hear 401K, that's usually a for-profit. 403B is usually nonprofit, state, government, something like that. And then 457B is a special kind of option for nonprofits, state, some some educational institutes. 457B is a deferred compensation. So what that is, is it works kind of like a 401k, but with a twist. So if you have a choice, you have both a 403B and a 457, you actually may be better off putting it in your 457B. And let me explain why. Assuming they have the same investment, which usually like one place has the same investment for both accounts. The 457B is deferred comp, and you can get it the day you quit that job. You don't have to wait till 59 and a half, like a 403B or 401K. So that is a bonus. Now, by the way, you can keep it in there too. But like, if I want to retire at 45, well, I can pull money out of my 457B and just use it. So it is one of those things. And if you have an option of 403B and a 457, you can actually max out both. So you put- Like me. 2022, sorry, 2023, you put 22,500 into each and just, you're growing. And depending on the company, they may have both a Roth and traditional option. 
So you may be able to like mix and match and make your taxes work to get there. Now, one of the kind of weird, I usually will default to Roth unless you have to bring down your income for some reason. Well, if you're public service loan forgiveness and repay, it may make sense to do traditional and bring your tax, your taxable income down, brings your payment down. It's a game, you know, like, yeah, it is a game. It's definitely a game. And there's, yeah, like you were saying, it's levels, but like as a nurse in California that also, uh, that earns over a certain amount of money, my incentive is to bring my taxable income down because the state taxes are so high, federal taxes, all of that stuff. So when I do that, I end up paying way low below the federal level and, you know, I'm saving a lot. And yes, I have access to the 457. So I'm using that as kind of like my early retirement or my mini retirement tool so that when I separate from my company, yes, I will pay taxes on that money. However, if I'm in a year where I'm in a mini retirement and I'm not drawing down any money from or, or earning any money, I'm sorry, from my jobs, my tax rate is going to be not nominal. It's going to be pretty small. So that's one of the things that I'm using. And a lot of people don't know that there's that option, just like they people can draw from their Roth IRAs early and they don't know that that's an option. And it's not, and I'm not talking about like kind of just like pillaging from your retirement accounts. I'm talking about strategic ways to get money out of your accounts when before you return before you turn retirement age strategically because best believe most of my money is going to be in my accounts where I can draw from in retirement so that I do have a good amount of money in retirement but I do max out these other options so that I have money available to me pre-retirement and and I'm going to challenge you again just because it's fun yes Uh, and (laughs) We're going to shift from the reader comments to you. Yes. And and so, okay, you max out the 457, you max out the 403B. Are you putting more into your like taxable brokerage account right now? My taxable brokerage account, I don't put much in because I usually invest for my kids outside of that. Yeah. So if you're going to, by the way, putting in 529 is a great way. And there's also tax breaks for that too. Mm -hmm. If you're going to be putting it in your taxable brokerage, it's actually an argument for using Roth because... I can actually pay the taxes now, effectively put more into my retirement rather than putting it in a taxable account. So what happens is, yes, I'm going to pay them in California. I'm going to pay a whole lot of taxes and federal and all the other. I'm not going to get the break. But what happens if I put it in my taxable, I've got to pay taxes on it as it grows and all the other. I can actually lock in more into my Roth into retirement by putting $22,500. I pay the taxes now, the same effective as if I put like an extra 35% into my retirement. It's going to grow so tax You're saying forever. so to do it as a Roth 403B, like put more into mm-hmm. my Roth 403B because I can contribute so much more and then that yeah. can roll into a Roth and then I'll have so much more. Well, it grows. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, so yeah. it, it, it's one of those weird ones. The 529 for the kids, great way to do that. You know, up to whatever. Some states, by the way, don't give tax breaks on that or not. So each state Like California. Yeah, California, like, I just assume they tax everything. Like, I saw something the other day, like, I was working something on disability, and, like, they actually didn't tax it. I was like, how is that? California didn't tax that. Like, you know, that, it's where they tax everything. Yeah, but pretty much. What happens is the 403B and 457, if you can do Roth, you're not limited, like, the Roth IRA to the income and have to do the backdoor Roth and all that. What you find is mm. people that have high incomes, you know, like 200, 300, you know, six figures plus, 
are putting their money in the Roth, even though they're paying taxes because it grows tax-free forever. And I can effectively put the extra that I would have been taxed on into there and it's growing on its own. The other one, and just kind of walk this through and the same goes to the, to the person that emailed in. If you have access to an HSA, that's an even better benefit. So I wish. Max out I the wish. HSA first. You're currently, you got medical issues. You don't want to be taking a high deductible program. All well, right. definitely not. Yeah, exactly. With my situation, but like any other time when I'm perfectly healthy, <laughs> oh, but believe, best believe I'm racking up a lot of bills that I could use in an HSA. Yep. I, I think it, it's a priority question. So if you have an HSA, that one gets filled first because you get a tax deduction when it goes in, it grows tax-free and comes out tax-free for medical. So you get the triple benefit. If that's not the case, then we can go to the 457, 403B, whatever works best for you in your life. Yeah. <laughs> Only this year, by the way, Dr. J, do I have all this craziness going on? Any other year, I really go to the doctor. <laughs> well, so people that have kids. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going, you really can't get away with a high deductible plan because kids, it just happens. Stuff happens, you know, and the way I usually ask people when they're picking their healthcare plans, I go, are you lucky? And they go, no. I'm like, well, then you can't take the high deductible plan. Like, mm-hmm. it's, And that's not scientific. It's just if you pick the high deductible plan, you're going to end up running medical bills <laughs> if, you, if you're not lucky. And yeah, there's some uh, research that says people don't get medical care if they have the high deductible plan. Really? They avoid it. That's part of the reason oh, why I see what you're exist. saying. Okay. Yeah, they kind of, okay, I get it. Well, it's not an option for me, but I'm actually blessed to have a really good um, PPO plan that I pay like $19 or a paycheck to cover my family of three. I'm going to be four. So <laughs> I'm not mad at it, even though I love the benefits of an HSA. You know, you have to weigh those things. You know, there's some people out there hating on you for having a $19 healthcare plan. Oh, dang. Like I've seen some family plans of thousands of dollars a month, you know, and you're like, my plan over here is $19. Seriously. I, yeah, like when I switched to my partner's plan, when I was pregnant with her, that was it. It was like $1,800 and it wasn't the level. It was like a Medicare plan. It was horrible. I was like, what is this ghetto-ness? Like, let me go back to work and get my benefits. Like I have never experienced that. And I think like, that's one of the things of being like a nurse and being in healthcare is that we typically have pretty good plans attached to, if you work in a hospital setting, at least from my experience, we have really good plans. I mean, $19 is a lot because I used to pay zero for a family plan or $5, like something crazy like that. Okay. You're not allowed to complain about that, but you're, <laughs> you're, you're right. And that's also why a lot of people are like, oh, I'm going to work part-time for the benefits. You know, a lot of nurses can work 24 hours and get healthcare on the way by and yeah. save themselves a giant amount in comparison to other plans out there. And then they go, oh, well, my plan is terrible. And I'm like, listen, your plan is phenomenal you know, shush, like, don't complain about this. Like, well, they upped the premium from $5 to 19. I'm like, stop. Like, <laughs> People just don't understand the world out there and how ghetto it is in these health insurance streets. It's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> so for, for this person, I just want to make sure we cover like, when we talk about the match, because a lot of people sometimes don't understand how matches work. 
And I just want to make sure we address that. Like investing up to the company match, what does that mean? And do we stop that to to pay down debt? Or like what's your typical advice for that? So if you follow the Dave Ramsey world, he says stop it and just pay down your debt. And and I get where he's coming from and I can I can see the argument. Now my first question is, are you going to be there long enough to get the match? So what people don't think about. So how match usually works. Let's, let's use an example. So I put in 6% as the employee. My employer puts in half of that. So they get 3%. So essentially I get 50% extra on my money, but usually you got to be there three years before that vests, which means you get to keep it. Now I often talk to people. I'm like, are you going to be at that job three years? They're like, no, I'm moving in two years. Well, then the vest doesn't matter or the match doesn't matter. And I think what happens is the average, I saw some stats on like the average tenure at a job, something like two and a half years, 2.2 years, something like that. Well, at that point, you're throwing away your match. And I think a lot of people, a lot of companies are actually moving the vesting time out to like five years. That's on average that I've seen. Some some companies immediately vest. I think my hospital immediately vest. But then I think, you know, the retirement accounts are expensive. So I think people are moving that number out. Yeah. And I've actually, because of the layoffs of the others, some companies are starting to stop their match. Yeah. So like, just like, hey, we're broke. Instead of laying off people off, we're just going to not do a match this year. Which by the and way- I- I believe oh. half the time it's just them using an excuse to not give you the extra money, but you know. True. But then I also see people that will choose not to invest because there's no match. Right. And, and here's the thing. So your 401k, the money you put in the, into the employee part is yours. And, and you can put 22500 People go, well, I maxed out my IRA. I'm like, yeah, that's great. That's 6500 bucks. <laughs> You can do that too. That's a separate question, but you can max up the, the 401k. Also, for those people who are self-employed, you can actually create a self-employed 401k, a solo 401k, and you can actually put both the employee and the employer component. So when this person's talking about the match, my thing is, all right, you're going to be there. Because if they're talking about public service loan forgiveness, they're working a state job, that tells me they're, they're not going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> like, just kind of how that works. But if they said, hey, I'm planning to move states next year, well, then let's put it towards the debt. Yeah. So that's where that argument comes in. Also, when it gets to like credit card debt at 20 or 30% APR, you might just want to not do the match and just put all your money towards that debt because. Yeah, that's crazy. That, it's, it's insane. You know, I mean, some states now like they have caps of like 28 or 29%, something like that. It's still and it has so- high. Anything exactly. that's over 5%. Is going to be insane. And so when you go up to double digits in interest rates, do you realize how much interest you're giving people? I have a two. I I looked at my mortgage statement the other day and my interest rate is 2.8%. And I was still blown away at how much interest I pay. And now you're looking at people with like the 6% interest rates are like $700,000 mortgages. And I'm just like, Houseway, like make this make sense. Okay, pause for a second. Yeah. Do the math for me on a second. So if you said, so right now six percent mortgage rates are kind of average on a seven hundred thousand dollar house, how much interest per year does that mean you're paying? 
Have you done that I math? No, I don't do that math because it gives me a headache. I'd, I'd use a mortgage calculator, and I and actually I did do it because I have a post about it. Oh, um, it's forty two thousand dollars a year in interest. In interest. Mm-hmm. And then another twenty thousand dollars in property tax. <laughs> hold on, hold, hold on. Forty two thousand dollars a year in interest when the average household is making something like sixty grand a year. Now, by the way, that's a weird California real estate thing. But I mean, you're talking about you have to work a full time job just to pay the interest. And, and I've actually been having this debate with people. Be like, well, should I buy or should I rent? And I'm like, oh, rent things looking a lot better right this second. And people go, well, but then I'm paying a landlord. Yeah, but you're not paying $42,000 a year in interest. That's what people don't understand. And I'm not knocking people who want to buy property. So I, I think I have to always put that disclaimer out there because people think I I hate property owners where I've owned like seven, eight houses, my, you know, since I was 21. Okay. So, I know the game. You are still, no matter what, paying for a place to live. The goal when you're paying for a place to live, because it usually takes up so much of your income, is to minimize that expense as much as possible, regardless as if if you rent or if you own. Now, if you get a place and you're able to pay a mortgage plus the interest and it is still very minimal. Okay. You have a justification to buy, but so many people are willing to be house poor just for the sake of saying that they own something and not doing the math and not understanding how much they're actually paying. And we just talked about interest. We didn't, I threw in the property tax thing, but that's not even calculating the property tax. That's not even calculating the maintenance costs. That's not even calculating, you know, the, what is it called? The, the down payment that you have to put down and the opportunity cost associated with that. Like, I mean, People don't want to do the math, but when I tell them that, I'm a hater. So, you know, we're, we're gonna we're gonna have to do a separate episode on buy versus rent. And yeah, so I work with child free folks, and they're much more mobile. You know, they're kind of nomadic a bit more. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, rent, and they're like, but I was always told I need to. And I'm like, that's nice. We can get you access to real estate through like a real estate investor trust. You can get invested in it without having to deal with it. And like, well, but I could rent it out. Yeah, but now you like a remote landlord and you know, the hot water heater breaks and like, forget it. My my wife and I, we own our place, but that the amount of work we have to do with it is crazy. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. We'll have to come back to that. Cause we could go a whole, like that's a whole episode on its own of just saying rent versus <laughs> own. And we can just get yelled at for that one. <laughs> we, I don't mind getting yelled at because I think people need to kind of like wake up seriously. So we talked about the match and let's just kind of like do a recap of the situation. So basically this person is asking whether they should be increasing their investment in their 403B or in 457 versus paying down $30,000 in student loans and they qualify for PSLF. So to summarize like the recommendation for them, what say you, Dr. J? So knowing nothing else in there. I'd say put the extra money in the high yield savings until they figure out what's going on with student loans. Like seriously, mm-hmm. until she, until they know how many payments they have, all that, the, the, all the, the Supreme court ask the question. It's, it's when you shake the eight balls says, ask the question again later, you know, like that's kind of where you're at. 
but make sure you're putting the money away in savings and not spending it because mm-hmm. extra money hanging around tends to disappear. disappear. Mm-hmm. So I would do that. And then once we have a final answer on what's going on with student loans, then I would either follow the PSLF and do the repay or just pay it off. Depending on, you know, if you get, if you get the 20 grand pay, you know, you got 10 grand left, pay it off and get rid of it. It's not a pet. You don't want to keep it around. Right. <laughs> I love that advice. I think that's great advice. So I hope you guys could benefit from that. I think this has been a great episode. We covered so many different things within just this question, but it brings up a whole lot of things. My general kind of feeling around this is this is a little bit more convoluted question. And if I was that person, I would go to a CFP to kind of break down the numbers and scenarios. And we don't have all the information. We don't know how much this person is making. So I would recommend, you know, talking to someone, schedule an appointment with a fee-only fiduciary advisor, just like Dr. J, and as a situation for you, because this is not something that typically falls under blanket advice, just like most personal finance things, it's pretty personal. But I think in this specific situation with the kind of environment around the student loans right now, because there's so much changing, you might even want to consult a student loan professional as well, which you can kind of get both in a CFP. Also, (laughs) I would say reach out to somebody and get a little bit more help and clarity so that you can make the right decision for you. Yeah. And I'm going to put a shameless plug in here for a website. It's called adviceonlynetwork.com. It's actually a group of financial planners, all fee only, but they're also called advice only. You just pay them for an hour of their time or whatever it is, and you can just get some answers. I, I freely admit I'm one, I'm on there, so it's not, it, it is a shameless plug, but it's a different way of doing it because this is not an investing question. This is kind of yeah. like bigger financial planning questions. I will tell you, though, if you ask three CFPs what to do about it, you probably get three different answers because it depends on the crystal ball around student loans. If you ask me, like, in August when all the plans are in place, this is an easy question. Asking in February, like, the week before the Supreme Court case and – I have no clue. At least I'm well, willing. Thank you for that. Because I think there's a lot of times and we just need to simply throw up our hands and say, we don't know. And it's a little bit easier to wait, but to create a, t- you know, an action plan around waiting, like putting your money in a high yield savings. So I definitely appreciate that answer, but it still brought up really, really good talking points that people need to just think about when it comes to their finances. So again, always a pleasure, Dr. J. I love going back and forth with you. I love when you try to rattle me. Trying to rattle you. I just try to, you know, like have a discussion. I mean, you want this podcast to be boring? I love it. I love it. I love when you shake things up because people need to hear, you know, different opinions and different approaches. And I don't want to be dogmatic because that's not how personal finance works. And I think that's what I want people to get out of this the most is that it's not a dogmatic thing. It's not something that, you know, we just have one solution for. It always is kind of just depends. And so I thank you and I appreciate you being here as usual. And I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to my mommy's podcast. Bye-bye. Bye.